2: Mistress Carrie! What's up, this is Aaron from Stain, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hi everybody, this is Dave Grohl from the Foo Fighters, and you're listening to the one, the only, Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is David from the band Disturbed, and you're listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress
0: Carrie. Hi, Bruce Dickinson here from Iron Maiden. Yes, indeed, Miss Whiplash herself,
3: Mistress Carrie, is here to um, unchain your brain. Hi, this is Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers, you're listening to Mistress Carrie.
0: This is Dennis Leary, you are listening to my favorite, Mistress
2: Carrie. Hey, this is Corey from Stone Cell. And you're listening to you have the privilege of listening to Mistress Carey. Oh God.
3: Oh yeah. Hey, it's Mistress Carrie, reporting for duty from MCHQ for episode 181 of the Mistress Carrie podcast. And before we get to this week's guest, Jay and Dave from Rubicon, I want to first wish you a happy Thanksgiving. And second, remind you about everything you can find online at mistresscarry.com. Of course, you can find all the episodes of the Mistress Carrie podcast, but you can also find all the episodes of my weekly video show, Cocktails in the War Room, too. You can check out my event and concert calendar for all of the shows coming to New England. You can find all of my social media links and check out the Mistress Carrie blog. New this week, my appearance in the new Sully Erna documentary, I Stand Alone, The Sully Erna Story. And my appearance in the documentary about Lacuna Coil celebrating the 20th anniversary of their album, Coma Lies. And you can do some holiday shopping in the online Mistress Carrie store. I've got everything from beanies and hoodies to t-shirts and tank tops coffee mugs, pint glasses, 7-in-1 bartender tools, bags that'll make it into any sporting event or concert, and so much more. Just check out the show notes of this episode or go straight to MistressCarrie.com. Jay Sims and Dave Raymond from Rubicon are some of my oldest friends in music. And since this weekend is one of the most traveled weekends of the year, a holiday where most people are spending time With those they love the most, I thought it was a great week to bring Dave and Jay on the show. The band Rubicon sprouted out of Boston more than 20 years ago, and the band is still going strong. Their new single, Lose It All, is out now, and their upcoming new album should be released in early 2024. To say these guys are part of my family would be an understatement. So, if you've never heard of Rubicon, I am so excited that you're finding out about him right here on the podcast. So, allow me to introduce you to Jay Sims and Dave Raymond from Rubicon.
2: It's like you're a pro or something. Or, like
3: or something. Yeah. This
2: broadcast hobby of yours.
3: I hope it works out.
2: Seems <laughs> to have taken a life
3: of its own. I hope it works out. Oh my goodness, I have been waiting to do this episode Jay and Dave from Rubicon. How are you?
2: We are doing so good, and it even better to be sitting here talking to you.
3: What's up, Dave? How you doing? It's so good to see you guys, even though I saw you not long ago, because you guys yeah. played a bunch of shows with Collective Soul, and I got to see you and hang out, which is how Jay got that fancy purple retro 70s baseball jersey. And here I was, So, so that night that I saw you guys at the Cabot Theater, we traded shirts. Absolutely when you guys agreed to come on the show because you guys made shirts the only other color I wear besides black is like all of like army army green and you guys made army green rubicon shirts I'm like I'm gonna wear their shirt and then Jay shows up in my shirt with an army (laughs) green pullover yeah (laughs) so thanks a lot Dave for not wearing my show now you look like the outlier
1: I didn't get the memo. <laughs> I'll ch- I have to check my email for that one.
3: So I, I always get asked what the most like difficult interviews are to do. And I have found over the years that the better I know the bands and the people on the show, the harder it is to interview them because sometimes I know stuff that I'm not supposed to know as a <laughs> as a an interviewer but I know because I'm a friend and so it's always a little nerve-wracking to like interview people where I could get you in trouble
2: (laughs) I think that everything that could get us in trouble is probably been in the past so I think you know I think the noses stay pretty clean these days literally (laughs) and figuratively
3: (laughs) well for anybody that that doesn't know Rubicon just celebrated your 20th anniversary and the lineage of the band goes back to Boston which is how I met you guys but your story as a band is kind of strange because you function you are functioning remotely before the industry and bands realized that that was a thing
2: yeah 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 definitely um you know we like you said we started in boston we were with each other you know every single day and and uh and then later as life progressed you know we all moved across the country and and in different spots and um yeah i mean we we we've, we've done a lot of remote writing and, and just idea sending and stuff like that but we still you know we managed to get together i don't know maybe probably four or five times a year solely to do writing things to get together and do writing things. But um, yeah, I mean, we wrote an entire album remotely. It was a American dream machine back in 2010. And that was completely remote. Um,
3: Long before Metallica did it during the pandemic.
2: Right. (laughs) But uh, yeah, I mean, it's been a unique situation, um, but also extremely blessed and you know, to to be able to still do it after all these years and, uh, you know, with the same guys and and, and to be extremely close friends and uh, closer than family in, in a lot of senses.
3: Anybody that's um, listening to this, that's listening to you talk, Jay, they're like, that guy's not from Boston.
2: No. You no. Can tell. <laughs> no. Yeah, I, I grew up in Mississippi and um, started. Playing in bands there, fronting bands there, and um, you know, was ran there for several years and just sort of exhausted my opportunities and my resources. And we used to do we used to like trade shows with um uh like three doors down because they were from Biloxi and uh we were stationed in Hattiesburg. But I literally moved to Boston on a whim. I I I, I went on a map and was like you know and and bought you know great sports town the celtics i was a celtics fan growing up in mississippi so yeah moved there I was in a band for about a year um that i joined immediately upon moving and then um but i knew all the guys in rubicon they were in another band um called johnny wishbone and they po- they basically poached me from uh my other band and i was happy to be poached and uh yeah i mean I love Boston. Boston is just as much of my home as any other place that I've lived.
3: And now and, you you uh, live in Nashville.
2: Yes. Yep. Live in Nashville. Um, work at a recording studio here in Nashville. And uh, yeah, man, life is pretty sweet.
3: <laughs> Dave, I met you during the Johnny Wishbone days. which oh, Absolutely. Which is so crazy to me that I've known... Rubicon is an entity for 20 years plus, but knew you guys before Jay moved from Mississippi is Johnny Wishbone.
1: That's right. And it's crazy. It's a half a lifetime, I, right? I mean, it's, it's a wonderful <laughs> thing.
3: I, I, I When I try to. It's wrap, a whole
1: adult. It's,
3: like Not even like barely an adult, like a functioning, old enough to be a parent with a career and a 401k adult.
2: Yes, exactly. Yes.
1: Our relationship can rent a car.
3: <laughs> <laughs> so Dave, you're in Boston right now. Are you originally yeah. from Boston, born and raised?
1: Oh yeah. I'm, I'm born and raised in Methuen, um, famous for Caven. in uh, I went to high school with, uh, Sully Erna's brother, I believe, or cousin. Carlo. And I've, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and yeah, I mean, I've, Lived, I've lived abroad a few times, France, Argentina, Uruguay, but otherwise I'm just born and raised in New England and never plan on leaving here. It's paradise, you know?
3: So before Jay moved up from Mississippi and before Johnny Wishbone became Rubicon, when did Johnny Wishbone start? Is that where the rest of the Rubicon guys all met? Is that Did you meet as musicians or did you guys grow up together?
1: So our drummer and I, Doug, went to undergrad in Boston together. Um, we met, talked music from the first conversation, jammed a few days later. And he and I had been playing together for decades at this point. And we started Johnny Wishbone as a cover band in undergrad. And that, I swear, that first show that we played where they, you know, they handed us $1,000 and all you can drink. And we're meeting these chicks who were coming up to us. And it was like a light bulb went off over our heads. And it was like, huh, <laughs> it seems to be the right career path. And so... After undergrad, I had a chance to move back to France on Fulbright, and I declined it, which and to try to be a rock star, which my parents, of course, they didn't like that at the time. But I was, you know, my opinion was, hey, you started this right, like you got me my first guitar when I was a kid. You paid for lessons when I was, you know, getting a, you know, getting familiar with the instruments. So, um, yeah, no regrets. We did Johnny Wishbone. We kind of transitioned to being an original band. Uh, as we were um, graduating from college, played for a few years, uh, as Jay mentioned, you know, we, we we were gigging with his band quite a bit and became tight with them. And in the, in the, the, we would scheme in the audience and be like, look at him sing. huh?" <laughs> and so, yeah, one day it just made sense to have that conversation, conversation, excuse me, with Jay. And uh, it just all kind of clicked together.
3: There's and, two ways to covet in rock and roll. You either covet the other guy's girl or you covet the other guy's band members.
2: Mm-hmm. oh and here the, the crazy thing is is that 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 lust was also reversed like we would play shows with johnny wishbone and and i would sp- very specifically watch dave and huey and like and i was just like those you know like we could compliment each other I wait think. what was the name and of that so band my l oh, my first boston band Steelhead. <laughs> It was like a sort of stoner rock, like sort of Caius, you know, you know, and at the time there was several bands in Boston that were doing that, like Road Saw and like Scissor Fight. And uh, and so, yeah, my very, very first tattoo is the steelhead logo that I got done at a dude's house in Alston because tattoos were still illegal in mass. Remember that?
3: Oh, I remember.
2: Yeah. So it was like So was pot back then. Yeah. Oh yeah. I'm in this dude's kitchen, like sweating to death as he's like tattooing me and I'm like, you know, drinking beers and smoking pot at the same time. And like I have a bunch of tattoos, but my first one, like I almost passed out. (laughs) Not from the paint you know, whatever that thing is that makes people, you know, sort of nod out, but yeah. Steelhead.
3: So, Dave, you touched on it a little bit. Whenever I I talk to artists, because you guys have known me a long time, so you know that I have zero musical ability and cannot sing or write songs, but I'm just surrounded, fortunately, by people who can. I'm incredibly fascinated by the origins of a musician's career. So the first thing is, the, the theory is, my theory in music is, you grow up, And there's the soundtrack to your childhood, the music that gets thrust upon you because of your parents or your older siblings or your badass cool uncle that everybody seems to have. And then there is a moment where you hear a band or a song or something and go, oh, no, no, hold on. I like that. And from that moment on, your musical identity changes. So growing up, what was the soundtrack to your lives? What were you hearing at home?
1: Oh, I'll take that one. Awesome question. So at home, I was hearing the Doors and the Doobie Brothers, um, nothing too hard, but I had an older neighbor and we would play baseball on the street all the time. This older neighbor would be like, hey, Dave, you ever hear of Iron Maiden? And I'm like, what's an Iron Maiden? And be And put on a cassette and be like, listen to this. And so he played, you know, early Metallica for me and just blew my mind. And I just was like, you know from seven eight years old i was just full-on metal head and it took me a good probably until my early 20s before i started to listen to things outside of metal <laughs> if that makes sense
3: well especially so, growing my- up for us the music that we listened to was more than just what we liked it was who we were i think music is a lot more accessible and a lot more acceptable for people to have diverse musical backgrounds But I think in the 80s specifically, the music that you listened to said everything about you to the rest of the world. Definitely. And so there's a lot of music that I like now that back in the 80s, I would have been like, that sucks.
1: (laughs) Yeah, same. Same. I I just went to, to one of my kids to Duran Duran a few weeks ago at the Garden. It was totally insane. An amazing show. And I never would have gone in the 80s. If you were like Duran Duran, I would have been like, no way, you know. Like, if it's not Maiden or Metallica or Dio, it sucks, right?
3: But it was yeah. great, right? I saw <laughs> yeah, uh, that's how it was.
2: I saw Depeche Mode last week, and like, it just blew my mind. And and then the week before that, I saw Monoskin. So it's like, I've all my musical taste is extraordinarily wide. Like, I, I heavy music and is my first love, and that's the kind of music that I make but it's not necessarily what I listened to most of the time. Like my first exposure to music were my dad's records and that was Pet Sounds. And that was Elvis and and the Beatles and Ray Charles. And then, uh, I I remember it like it was yesterday and here it is. Here's, here's the origin. Like you said, that one moment where you were like, Oh, and it's ironic because I'm not a huge fan of this band. Uh, (laughs) When I was in eighth grade, I I was I played on the high school baseball team, and so we had practice after school, and I rode a practice with a couple of seniors. It was probably like an eighty-one Camaro, I think we were in, and uh, and they were just blasting it, ear-splitting volume, crazy nights by Kiss, and I was like, I this is I think this is for me. I think this is this is the thing.
3: It's, it's crazy. Not I'm one supposed of to kiss Kiss's see it. best songs.
2: No, not at all.
3: Uh, but yeah.
2: I'm supposed to see them tonight in Nashville, by the way. Really? Yeah. I've never seen Kiss. I think I'm supposed to go tonight. So. You got
3: to go once before they're not touring gotta anymore. Go you got to experience it. I felt like this is through. our final tour thing, like four farewell tours ago.
2: Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. it's it, it, At this point, it's just to see it so you can say you saw it, I yeah. guess. Yeah. Yeah. Um,
3: Cause you got it. But
2: yeah, that, that opened the, the heavy metal doors, you know? And then, yeah, ever since.
3: You go from being a kid, listening to the music that's around you to discovering music you love. But you guys, unlike me also discovered some kind of musical ability. Does it run in the family? Because there's that discussion about whether or not it's inherited or learned So do you guys carry musical ability in your genes or are you first generation musicians?
2: So both my parents are musicians. Um, And I probably sang like in front of people for the first time when I was uh, four. Um, I actually have a recording of it. It's pretty wild. Um, But with that being said, I think that aptitude is something that you have or you don't. Um, it, I taught voice for about 10 years to a, a bunch of different singers and stuff. And, and, you know, it's, uh, yeah, I think there's skill, like there are people out there who have no rhythm and, and then there are me. people who do, and <laughs> then there are people who do on a high level Yeah, and, you know, like, you know, drums make a little bit of sense to me but to some people, they make all the sense in the world. You know, I play guitar. I'll never get to a point in my life where I have the ability that Dave has. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and and granted there's, you know, there's a, there's 10,000 hours of work that goes into the being that, you know, uh, just like anything, being a, being a broadcaster, being a, you know, a singer anything. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I think genetics plays into it a little, but I think aptitude, you know, and, and musicians like lifers like us, it's like it, it's it becomes something that you do, and that it becomes part of who you are. Like, yeah, I don't know. I'm people ask me what what, what do you do? Well, I'm a musician. You know, I, I have I done a whole bunch of other jobs. Yeah. But what I am at my core is a musician.
3: It's funny that you bring up the 10,000 hour rule because I asked this very question to Wolfgang Van Halen because I thought there's nobody better to ask about musical DNA than a guy like Wolfgang Van Halen. And he said that, you know, he plays all the time and that he grew up in a music positive environment where he's like, you know, I play all the time. So it's not just that I got gifted this ability he's like maybe it played a little bit of part in my dna and in my blood but i've worked at it since i was nine
2: absolutely absolutely it's just like a you know a little boy a four-year-old who you know starts throwing a football around you know if he wants to be a professional football player he's got to consistently and constantly be doing that you know that's my phone. And, and, by the and, yeah. Way. yeah, there you go, Eddie. Yeah, yeah. so and it's David- been like
1: that. since He passed. It. My phone's been like that since Eddie passed, and I'll probably never change it. Yeah. Like most people have their kids or their pets on their phone. I have Eddie Van Halen.
3: Well, Dave, <laughs> as a guitar player, it seems to be a consensus that the guitar existed, and then Eddie arrived, and then the guitar was different forever after that.
1: I agree with that, and I, and I think. I also think that when Tom Morello touched a guitar, it changed again. Um, just because the stuff he did, people are like, what, I don't even understand what's happening here, right? Um, he was hugely influential on me and my musical evolution, for sure. Um, but to go back to your question about um, like, my family, my mother's side of the family has been like jam sessions on holidays since I was a little kid. My grandmother could crush it by ear on a piano. My mom can. Um, skip my generation. Cause I've had to bust my ass to get halfway decent at the guitar. Um, but now my 12 year old son can play Mozart by ear on piano and hold it down on a drum wow. kit. My 10 year old daughter sounds like Adele when she sings in the car. It's, it, it's crazy. So I think, I think there are things that are in there. Um, and then, you know, Jay mentioned uh, aptitude. I also think attitude, right? Like you, if you bring a love of music and you just work, 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 it's like anything you can, you know, I'm living proof that you can get like good enough to be allowed to play in Rubicon for two decades. Right. And thanks for that, Jay. <laughs> Keeping me around. You're wa- Yeah, you're welcome, pal. So, <laughs> yep. No, I realize I'm hanging by a string here. So,
3: so it sounds <laughs> exactly. like everybody in your family, Dave, was a singer or a piano player. So when did you say, I want to play guitar? Because you said your parents bought it for you and you took lessons yep. as a kid.
1: I did. Yeah. My cousin Bill lived, he was a year older than me and lived on the same street. And Justice for All came out by Metallica. Our brains were completely blown and we immediately both started playing guitar. Um, He quit a few years later. I just haven't. (laughs) So I keep playing.
3: (laughs) I am amazed at how many guitar players, for some reason I thought all of you musicians in general were adept at reading music and and writing music literally like on a staff sheet of paper because my illustrious clarinet career in the marching band, we had to learn how to read and write music during all of that. But when I interviewed Nuno Betancourt, that's the one that really blew me over because I thought for sure he could read and write music as the language on a piece of paper. And he told me he couldn't. And I was like, what? What? So the lessons you took, did you learn through family or the lessons to read and write music too?
1: I did, yeah. And I learned to read jazz charts in high school as well. Um, but of course that's, you know, back when the dinosaurs were right? There was no YouTube. Um, you had tablature and you had guitar magazines and I, you know, subscribed to all of them and I literally have decades of issues piled up in my house. Um and those were like the thing, right? Like, you know, as soon as I'd see the new guitar magazine come out, I'd see a Metallica song in it. And I would like go hole up in my room and try to master that song. Um, but the tab tablature makes it a whole lot easier to make music accessible if you're not comfortable reading um, traditional notation.
3: What was the first guitar that you ever had, both of you? And do you still have it?
1: Well, okay. So I have a, a, a custom ESP shredder guitar that my grandmother bought me when I was in high school. She said, if you get straight A's this year, I'll get you any guitar you want. And I got this ridiculous red with black crack ESP shredder guitar. Um, it was stolen from me on tour. I cried like a baby. And then I found it on eBay five years later and bought it back. And it's at a luthier right now being, uh, being fixed up, but I still have that. That's like my, my first real guitar.
0: Oh
2: God. Uh my first guitar was uh i had to learn how to play acoustic before my dad would buy me an electric guitar so he had some it was like a it was a gut string classical uh uh, guitar which i still have it's a goya it's a spanish guitar and then uh so i learned how to play some chords and stuff on that and so he bought me this (laughs) it was a red theories 10 with one, a single pickup in it, it was, I mean, just like one of the worst things you could probably buy. And, uh, yeah, I banged around on that for years and, and, uh, but no, I, I don't still have it. I do, however, jump on line every now and again to see if I could locate it just cause it'd be nice to have, you know, but I've, I also, I mean, I've, I've had 10 to 15 guitars that I don't have anymore that I wish I had back. (laughs) And I just
1: was pulling up a photo here. That that red guitar right there is is the, the one that my grandmother bought. Oh, I mean,
3: hell yeah. Oh,
1: yeah. It's a ridiculous guitar, too. It's actually quite amazing. It sounds and plays like, I mean, amazing guitar.
3: I yeah. can't count the times I've talked to a guitar player that has regret about trading in their first guitar to upgrade or a guitar getting stolen like Mark Tremonti had a Les Paul that his parents gave him get stolen in Boston and he's never been able to get it back. And so it, it feels to me like as a guitar player, part of your soul and DNA is in it and being separated from it. it it's like, there's a lost love that's out there that you never get back again. It's heartbreaking.
2: That is so violating. you know what I mean? Especially if it's something that holds not only material value, but also like sentimental value. Yeah. Yeah, man, I feel that.
3: It's very telling for players when you get that guitar and you're up in your bedroom and you're trying to learn these songs. Um, Jason hook from flat black told me recently that you get hooked when you can actually play something on a record to other people and that's then you're like okay there's no turning back after that so what was the first thing that you guys could play for real on your guitar as a kid
1: for me it would the first i had a really cool guitar teacher in high school he would teach me something theoretical and i'd be like hey man this is boring and he's like okay great now i'm going to show you how to integrate that into Rock You like a hurricane right so that's like the first riff i ever learned and he taught me the theory behind the power chord, and then he applied it in a way that spoke to me, right? And I think a lot of music teachers would do well to follow that model of, you know, what do the students want to learn, and you know, sneak the education in there, but give them what they're what they're looking for. Um, and I know, I mean, the first song I ever performed live was, uh, I played three songs at a talent show in high school, and we played, uh, we played, I am the walrus. By the Beatles. We played nice. it's a shame about Ray. Um by what is that? The Goo Goo dolls, I think. Um, and then we played the the Just Say Aussie version of War Pigs by Black Sabbath, <laughs> um, which has Zach Wilde absolutely burning it down on the guitar. And I took it took me months to figure that song out. Um, but yeah, I ripped that on on stage in high school. So
3: that's quite an eclectic collection of of for three <laughs> songs. I'm impressed.
1: I know. I know. It's you know one of the other band guys was like big into the Goo Goo Dolls or whoever wrote It's a Shame About Ray. And he's like, can we play this, please? And I was like, I don't yeah, I don't care. I'll play whatever. You know,
3: I make a That's corresponding great. playlist for every full length episode of the podcast, which if you're listening right now, you can go in the show notes. So I make a playlist of all the songs and artists that get referenced in the interviews in the hopes that. Maybe somebody for the first time didn't know that song by the Goo Goo Dolls or didn't know I Am the Walrus or whatever it is. And they go into the playlist so that they can easily find it. And um, this is going to be an eclectic playlist.
1: (laughs) It is. It is. Well, I was going to say earlier, if you were to cruise around the country uh, in a van with Rubicon, you would go from most deaf, who's one of our collective like our favorite rappers of all time we go right into like shadow boxer by fiona apple right into something by megadeth and then into something by like the james gang right it's like we are all over the map yeah didn't used to be that way
2: yeah no <laughs> See, my first well i mean i sang a million songs when i was young and, and but the first song i sang for me actually is for my girlfriend patience guns and that was, uh, that was the one. Did
3: you put it and on a p- mixtape, you romantic bastard?
2: <laughs> no, dude, I sang it in front of her. Whoa! Wow. Yeah. But that was uh, learned on guitar, which is, I mean, that's such a simple song. But for me, it was a big deal at the time. So
3: It seems to be a, a trend. <laughs> you know, I, I talk to songwriters a lot about brilliant songwriting. And the concept of simplicity continues to come up where... It doesn't need to be Rush or Iron Maiden complexity level to be great. Sometimes the simplest way is the more brilliant way.
2: Yeah. And I know Dave, you know, Dave's a guitar player and he he really appreciates guys that are, you know, uber proficient at their instruments and stuff. And uh, I don't care how many notes a guitar player can play or how many beats, a, you know, a drummer can play. Uh, I'll give you an example. Like, I was a massive Tool fan. I saw Tool on Lollapalooza. I had never heard of them. They were on a side stage. At the same time, they were playing with Rage Against the Machine on that side stage, and I was just – my jaw was on the ground. And so their first three records I thought were just absolute brilliant, hard rock, technical technical prog metal. You know, like, I loved it. And then then they I feel like they just started – wanting to show up show how good they can play all the time you know what i mean 10 minute songs 11 you know these huge jams and and that's where i fell off like yeah yeah less i mean less is more applies in a lot of a lot of scenarios but like i for me it's always song first you know i I, it needs to i need to you know love the melody and not, not only that but the lyrical content as well you know
3: Both of you guys have referenced Rage Against the Machine, and as they get inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame this year, which really goes to show you how far we've come in music, because I think we can all agree that when that first Rage record came out, no one would have believed it if you said out loud they are going to get inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame immediately upon nomination. People would have been like, there's no way. But time has shown us... The brilliance of a band like that and the innovation, Dave, to go back to what you were talking about, of a guy like Tom Morello looking at the guitar in a completely different way.
1: Yeah, I mean, just an unbelievable band. Probably some of the most intellectually deep lyrics I've ever... I can't think of anyone who writes to the level that Zach Roca does lyrically. And the the mountains of books and, you know, whatever, like position papers and things that he references is just it's staggering. I'm a huge fan. and Timmy, uh, Timmy C is like top five bass player for me. His groove is just, he's just nasty. So yeah, I'm, 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 I'm all for them being the rock hall of fame. That's for sure.
3: And it's funny because people talk about Zach's lyrics and obviously just the energy of the performance. They talk about Tom's innovation with guitar, but you guys can speak to this because Doug and Huey from Rubicon are such a succinct rhythm section that the rhythm section of Rage cannot be understated.
1: Oh, definitely not. The, Brad, and I didn't even mention Brad, and I should have, but like, he, he is a crushing drummer. And him and Tim, I mean, without them just laying it down, you know, Tom's riffs would feel anemic, right? I mean, they just wouldn't land with that power that Rage has. They're just unbelievable.
3: Back yeah. when uh, Battle of Los Angeles came out, um, I got okay. to interview tim and he was staying at that big fancy hotel in copley square that's like diagonally across from the library you guys know the one i'm talking about with the oh yeah with, so. with the big red overhangs i forget is it the commonwealth oh, hotel yeah. whatever it is yeah, and yeah. and obviously at that point like rage was like the biggest bit. so they had to smuggle me into the hotel and they had this suite where they were going to let me interview him and one of the questions That I asked him, and I took it as a compliment because he was like, nobody's ever asked me that before, was I asked him, could you ever imagine playing with a different drummer because of the way your rhythm section feeds off of each other? And he sat back and he was like, first of all, nobody's ever asked me that before. And second of all, no. Like and I bet Brad would say the same thing about me that he and I are these two puzzle pieces that have to be together in order to create the music that we create. Right,
2: I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. Um, we have had to in the past do a show or two without Doug, our drummer, just because booking happened. It was you know we don't cancel sh- we don't cancel stuff, so it had to happen. And so, and it was like, after that, where we were like, I don't know that we're ever going to do this again, (laughs) (laughs) because was it fine? It was fine. You know, people at the show probably didn't know the difference, but we sure did, you know, and, and it's like, when I'm on stage with my guys, with Rubicon, I don't think about anything. I don't think about, is this going to go right? Is this going to go wrong? I'm not, I'm not worried about any of it because it's like, I, I have as much confidence in all of them as I do myself. And it just becomes this breathing sort of entity. Mistakes happen. Of course, mistakes always happen, but you don't even, you don't even notice them, you know? And it's, it's autopilot with Doug, our drummer, like nobody else could be Doug and, and, you know, there's technical drummers. There's technical. There's guys out there that can play a million more notes than, than than Dave. And there's guys out there that are better technical drummers than Doug. And guys out there that can sing me under the table. But in this unit, in this thing, it's
1: perfect. <laughs> I second that wholeheartedly, and I, I would add the following: I try to practice with my eyes closed because when that happens on stage, and it's we're just a living breathing organism and the music's just flowing through you it's it's a religious experience for me and i think uh i think when when you achieve that with a band or or with your art it's i mean you know we wouldn't have driven the hundreds of thousands of miles that we've driven together if we didn't love doing it you know and and those moments on stage make it all worthwhile all the the loadouts in a snowstorm and the 4 a.m drives on icy highways like the when you're on stage it makes it all worth it
3: What you guys are talking about, the closest that I can get to that is a situation like this, because I've been on the radio and behind a microphone for decades now, but by myself, I've never been part of a show where you had to look at each other and know what each other was doing. It was always just me. So the only time I can even fathom what that sharing of experience is like is being in a situation where I'm interviewing someone else or a bunch of other people at the same time trying to juggle it all. I can't imagine doing it in front of thou, even though I know people are listening to it after the fact, doing it live in front of thousands of people just going like, God, man, I I hope he's in on this thing because my ass is out right now.
2: That's the thing is that I don't think any of us think that, you know, think that anymore. I mean, maybe, maybe we did a long, long time ago, but like I said, with that full confidence, like, gosh, I mean, I've messed up things a million times on stage and they're, they're always there to cover it. They're always there. You know, like, it's just, I don't know. It's family, it's family, you know, it's also rock and roll, right? Yeah. And it's rock and roll. We take it super seriously, we work hard. Right. But when we're
1: on stage, it's, we are a live band and if warts and all, right, if we make a mistake, we just keep driving the bus forward.
3: Dave, the sun has shifted behind you since we started talking and now you're in silhouette like you're in the witness protection program.
2: Yes, <laughs> we, just need, we need to Take change his phone voice, phone lower his voice. Yeah. Yeah. I feel voice.
3: like I need to be asking you about a drug ring in Cartagena or yeah. something right now. <laughs>
2: Let me tell you about the time we smuggled drugs during a show.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I don't recall.
2: (laughs) So, that's great.
3: Because we referenced it a little while ago that you guys have always been kind of a band that has been able to function without the band members all being around. Because at some point in Rubicon's career, you guys went from all being in Boston to spreading out across the country so Jay you're in Nashville Dave and Doug are still in Boston you've Mm -hmm. got Huey that's now in California Josh that's in Nashville with you so like when did the diaspora of Rubicon happen and and was technology helpful back then because I'm trying to think of how long ago it was that you guys all moved
2: um i moved in oh yep. mm-hmm. six yeah six. Yeah. um
1: and by the way um, i want
3: i want a prize for using diaspora in a sentence I,
2: you, you yeah, got
1: it i'm impressed i got the dictionary as soon as you
2: said look. it i started spelling it in my head i was like wait how does that work out let me see okay uh, that, was that a D good. or a V? <laughs> <laughs> I I got married um you know and you you know my wife um <laughs> do we need to tell and, that
3: story first right? I think we- you
2: all. Let me tell the truth.
3: Okay. Well, first of all, this story got referenced in my interview with Josh Todd from Buck Cherry <laughs> earlier this year. So, for anybody that listened to the Josh Todd episode, this is what we were talking about. So, go ahead and tell your version, Jay.
0: So,
2: no, no, no. You, your your version is the truth. But uh, Huey, our bass player, and I came to WAF in Boston. Rest in peace, greatest rock station of all time. Um, and we were coming in to give you a record, I think one of our, our new album or something. And we walked into the, the, the lobby and, and the, the gosh, why am I, I can't receptionist The receptionist, just the prettiest little thing I ever saw. And, uh, I, uh, ignored her completely. Uh, Huey talked to her a little bit. And then we went and had our meeting with you. And in that meeting with you, I was like, Hey, can you, uh, cause I, you know, I'm sort of a bitch and, and gutless. Uh, but I was like, Hey, Definitely. can you get me, uh, you know, that girl's, uh, you know, information or you know, phone number or something. And, uh, and so we left and like you, you messaged me back and you were like, okay, here's a her number. And, and, uh, And so I I eventually called her and started talking to her. And and it was shortly after that, that she realized that she was not talking to Huey (laughs) because Huey, our bass player is, you know, tall and he's beautiful. If uh, you guys were the
3: A team, he would get cast as face. Like
2: he would get, he would totally get cast as face.
3: He's a, he's a handsome guy. And
2: yeah. Side note, we went as the A team. For a show on Halloween night at the rock pile in Saugus.
3: Rest in and, peace, uh, rock And it was
2: a absolute disaster. <laughs> uh anyway.
3: But did he but get yeah, cast his like, face?
2: no, he was he was face he was face. he was he was uh, face. I was the Abaracas. You were Hannibal. I was Hannibal. I wore like a big belly suit. <laughs> and then uh, yeah. uh Doug was yeah. Holland Mad and Holland yeah, him I Steve Flag hosted the show. We got
1: hammered before hammered. we played, and Steve is now my cousin, which is crazy.
3: So crazy. But
2: anyway, we got we. That was a show where we all got way too drunk because there was hardly anyone there, and we were just like, "Screw it, we're gonna have fun." And then at the end of the show, we we're leaving the stage, and Dave, who's dressed as uh, BA Baracus, the white version of BA Baracus, he's like, "I'm not leaving the stage." <laughs> so I walked up there with like a pint of milk and I was like, you want some milk? You remember <laughs> how they used to drug VA Barack I and he drinks the milk and he passes out on state and we drag him off. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh,
1: so no, I was,
3: we were always very protective of our cute receptionist because bands and people were always coming in and out of the building always. and always <laughs> wanting to hit on the receptionist. And I right. was like, I really don't want to encourage anybody to go after our cute receptionist. Yeah. And, yeah. But, but I, you know, I talked to her and she was like, yeah, you can give him my number.
2: Because she thought you were talking about Huey, <laughs> 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 but anyway, like she wouldn't date me for like a year, you know, cause I, don't, I had a rep, reputation. Um, but yeah, I married her. So, um, and after we got married in Boston, we, we, we sort of just looked at our situation and the, the the income we brought in and we knew we wanted to have children and Boston didn't appear to be the place to do that. So we ended up uh, moving to Memphis and working for the same company, Intercom Communications. Um, but, yeah, that's why I moved, you know. thought I had a better paying job, I might still be in New England. Who knows? <laughs> but. <laughs>
3: And then Huey I mean, ended up going to California
2: Yes, and I believe so. got
3: married and had a family and you guys mm-hmm. all now have got a whole generation of little Rubicons now because since I've met all of you guys, you've all gotten married and all had these beautiful families and it's crazy when you guys have a show now because... All of the passes, like there's a whole other generation of Rubicon oh, now. It's it's like a family reunion.
2: I I absolutely adore it. It's I mean, how what's our kid count? Diggs? is it like fifteen? I've got three. You got two. Josh has five. Huey has three. Doug has two. I think it's fifteen. I think there's fifteen children between between the five of us. But uh, man, I love it. I I absolutely love it. I and my kids love Rubicon. Ask for it all the time in the car and stuff. So it's uh it's a beautiful thing.
3: So regardless of where you guys are all living, I'm fascinated with the process of songwriting. So break it down for me. Where does a Rubicon song start? How does it begin? Riff, lyric, melody? Where does it come from?
2: There's not a set That's answer right. to that. Yeah, right? It comes from everywhere. Really. It comes from everywhere um Dave Dave can present an entire idea of his that's you know based on guitar and we and we start from there and we write everything based off that the same can be said for you know Huey um bringing in a bass idea or, or Josh bringing in a guitar idea or um I think that's what sparks most of it is just one person brings in a thought, you know an idea and and sometimes it happens so organically and so quickly, and other times it is a straight battle just trying to figure out, you know, how to construct But we, we wrote this song for this new record that musically I think is just absolutely fabulous. And we cannot land on, you know, something for the, for the person, the chorus. So as of right now, it's not making the record, but you know, it, it just happens like that sometimes. And the good news is, is with modern technology and the ability to, you know, Dave can play a riff and record it on a voice memo on his phone and send it to somebody. And, you know, it, it goes from there. Um. Also like everybody, I'm not a primary guitar player in, in Rubicon, but there we've got guitar parts and songs that were my idea. and, we've got a whole lot of vocal ideas vocal stuff in our songs that were Dave's ideas you know or Doug's ideas and i i love that i adore being part of that collaboration cuz i personally i don't i don't i think um you were talking earlier about you know like you're you're radio you're doing stuff on your own you know i i don't know that i could do that i don't know that i'm talented enough to do that um it's
3: basically being in a padded room talking to yourself the only thing that makes me not committed to an asylum is that the microphone's on
2: yeah absolutely (laughs) i mean i've considered doing solo stuff over the years but that's just i don't think that's who i am i think i'm a band guy you know i fell in love with bands this gang of four this gang of five and this brotherhood and you know, I hate I hate it when like all these famous bands are are they, they they don't like each other anymore. They hate each other. And it's like you guys, you you know, you rode the lightning. You 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 did all this stuff and you did it together. Like what's so big that you can't be friends? You know what I mean?
3: I ask like, bands all the time. What's harder to keep together, a marriage or a band? I have never, ever had one tell me a marriage never.
2: I would, I would agree. I'd agree with that. Um, you know, and I'm, you know, like, I I, like a lot of musicians, I'm a crazy person and I'd be lying if I said that there weren't multiple times in my life where I did want to walk away. Um, but that, you know, most of the time that comes from just a headspace of, you know, you're in a certain headspace and you feel that way. And then once you snap out of it, you're like, I really didn't feel that way. You know,
3: You talk about the new record. So give me the details on what's going on with the new music.
2: Yeah. So we are actually
1: all getting together in Nashville uh, in a couple of weeks to hopefully put the final nails in this thing's coffin. Um, I think I have a couple of guitar tracks some solos to, to, to fill in. Jay has some, some vocals to figure out. And then we got, as Jay mentioned, we have one song where we are all over the moon about the music and just can't agree on what the, the, the vocal melody should be. And so, it's one of the rockinest things we've ever done, and it's just sitting on the back burner. I hope it sees the of <laughs> day.
3: <laughs> the concept of a producer comes up a lot because, to me, imagining being in your shoes, pouring my soul into these heartfelt lyrics or all of my emotion into this music, and then have some guy walk in and tell me they don't like it or they want to change it Maybe it's because I work alone so much that I, that would crush me to the point where I don't know if I would recover. So is this an example of why a producer is invaluable in a situation? In a song like this where where somebody needs to come in from outside to kind of referee and move these pieces around, is this where a producer is really needed? A
1: thousand percent, I mean, yes. And I would say... We as a as as humans we have grown to, like we built layers of respect for each other over the years. Where if any one of us is like, guys, I just I'm not feeling it. Like we hit the brakes and we we listen, right? Um, but that's taken years, and we've had you know plenty of temper tantrums. I remember one time we had a, a box fan in our band space. I couldn't get this riff. We had been drinking all day, and I just had this tantrum, and I just punched every blade out of the fan. I flood <laughs> all over my hands. Um, which the convenient song title, uh, and I mean, these things happen, but we've never taken out that kind of rage on each other. Um, you know, when we've run into impasses on the, on the writing process.
2: On the, on the producer front, um, you know, music is so subjective. You know, there, there's, there's stuff out there that people adore and worship that I don't connect with. There's, and there's stuff that I think is genius that other people don't connect with. You know, that's the thing about art. You know, one painting looks good to one person. It doesn't to the next. Um, It takes a bit of maturity as an artist to work with a producer to be able to relinquish a little bit of control. Um, I'll give you an example. So our latest single, uh, Lose It All, was we pretty much did all of that. You know, that was pretty much all ourselves, you know, engineered and and produced by Evan Fredrickson, who is Marty Fredrickson's son. And then uh, we were all
3: horsemen for anybody that doesn't know. Marty Mm -hmm. Fredrickson is one of the four horsemen. You can Google them and look at all of the bands that those guys have all produced.
2: six, Six to ten things on on the charts right now that have Marty Fredrickson's hands on. But anyway, we we were all in town. We were, we were working on this track. We were doing all this stuff. Marty's in studio and another thing. We we're like, "Hey, come listen to this and you know, see what you think." And he listens to it, and he was like, "Well, he was like, well, what if you it feels like something something's needed here? What if you did this? And what if you know what if you did this drum break? This you know, that's that's in the middle. That's in the latter half of the song. This this drum break. And um, and we were. You know, most definitely in the receiving sort of headspace for, for that. And we tried it. It elevated the song. It didn't detract from the song. It elevated it. You know, I think that's what a producer can do is, is elevate something. Um, me being here in Nashville, I've, I've actually had the, the privilege to produce a couple of records myself. And it it's just an ear. It's an ear that's not you. Because... Anything that I and you create on our own, we're definitely going to be biased towards. You know, and have I had my feelings hurt before by producers and engineers? 100%. I've definitely had my feelings hurt by my bandmates, 100%. But I think as a, as a musician and an artist, you, sh- you need to learn that maturity and be able to accept that is is a producer's uh opinion gospel absolutely not and if you're an artist or a band and you feel extremely strongly about a certain thing that that producer's not feeling well then you need to stand up for yourself and you need, you know definitely this is what i feel you know like i feel super strongly about this then it shouldn't be touched you know um but i think uh, i think a great producer is invaluable you know and just like just like everything else a lot of producers have different temperaments and different personalities and so working with one may not be as as fun or you know (laughs) enjoyable as working with another but um i love that i love a producer i love a collaboration i love people who can hear things differently than me
1: i feel the same way yeah and i mean to jay's point i've had my feelings hurt before um When I brought lyrics to the table, when I brought riffs, I brought whole songs. I mean, I have a whole album that I wrote that we never touched. And it's like, oh, well, you know, um, having someone who can, you know, redirect a conversation between band members, even ever so slightly, is really valuable because you can get, you know, we've known each other for so long and we've, you know, been all over the planet together. And like we can get stuck because of our, the way our relationships have have grown and grown so tight. And so, Having someone come in and say, what about this, Um, can often really help like change the energy, move a song forward and get past, you know, a challenging situation. I remember one weekend we were all in Boston and we do these writing weekends where we lock ourselves in our band room for like 12 hours, right? Buy a hundred beers and like lock ourselves in the room. We did three days on one song and it never worked. We never got past it. And everyone like went back to their respective homes that weekend, like, oh, like our time together is so precious, and we didn't get the thing out. Um, and that song's dead; like that, that's never coming back. Um, but I don't a boy, even a producer I don't remember what that was. That to- <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, yeah, right. I was writing on banjo at the time. If that—that's so. Hey, that's what,
2: hey, that that's what we'll was. do. We'll we'll have Marty listen to the uh, the 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 mystery song for the new record. <laughs> <laughs> totally. If it can unstick it, let's
3: do it. Oh, yeah. Tyler Just... told me in an interview once, I asked him, because obviously they're a band that's been together, broke up, replaced a bandmate, got back together. So I asked him, what's the biggest fight you remember Aerosmith getting into? And he was like, well, there was a lot of them that I don't remember. But one of the biggest fights he could remember, him and Joey got into a knockdown drag-out fight over the drum intro of Ragdoll.
2: Mm.
3: The doom da do And he wouldn't tell me whose version is on the record. Who ended up being right. And he was like, but it got nasty. Like things were getting thrown and argument. Like it got bad over the intro to one of the most famous intros of one of their biggest hits.
2: Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. It's crazy. We had a we've had a song on our last album that we did uh we have a song on that that was a it was a huge fight in the studio over that song and it had to do with my vocal and I wanted my vocal to be a certain way and uh we ended up it was pretty heated not physical but just you know verbally heated and eventually you know I cut the song maybe five six takes and then uh yeah hated that song. For the longest time. And it's one of my favorites. <laughs> <laughs> also, I, I bet you the beginning of uh, Ragdoll is
1: probably Brad's idea. <laughs> and, like the third party came in and said, just do it like this. And Seriously. And no, the two fighters, right? They, neither of them won.
3: Yeah, it's like they, you got to bring the ref in and call it a draw because it's just like, yeah. you know, but, it, but it's so funny to me because songs become so iconic to the fan, right? Like you were talking about, your love of Eddie Van Halen, like I bet going back and listening to early versions of Van Halen songs because we know how they ended up. Mm -hmm. But to hear the demos and to hear how the song changed through the creative process, like it would be so weird to us to hear those early versions and how they've changed so much to become the iconic Van Halen song that we know and love now.
1: Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I can tell you from, from Rubicon, I have versions of songs where it's, you know, me playing into a voice memo. And then eventually it's Doug and I in a room with the, a phone perched on an amp. And it's just drums and guitar. And then eventually, you know, Doug and Huey and I in a room jamming. And, have been, you know, I have like these songs that are like layers of sediment, right? And you can go back and unearth the initial skeleton and be like, huh, yeah, we were onto something. Because, you know, years later sometimes... That that thing that you started, you know, whatever in your basement evolves into a song that makes it to the album. And it's it's really fun to go back and and dig through those layers and and see how it started.
3: It's like that uh, that Peter Jackson docuseries about the Beatles. Did you watch that where you can watch Paul McCartney and you're like, wait, I know how the song ended up. But watching his brain pull those ideas out of the ether. To me, as someone that can't write songs, it was fascinating to kind of be a fly on the wall and be able to observe it.
2: Absolutely. And that's coming from some I I was I was just as amazed as you. And I do write songs. And I was just like, (laughs) but no, flabbergasted at that whole process. I love that documentary because it really humanized all of them. Um, and you saw like internal conflict and you know everybody was pissed that Yoko was around
3: she wasn't just around <laughs> she was sitting in the middle of the room knitting okay <laughs> you know,
2: but the, but yeah you're it's amazing uh, one of my favorite parts in that documentary is uh uh where they're trying to find the line um that tucson arizona like because they went through like two or three different you know I can't remember the first part of that <laughs> Tucson, <Arizona. laughs> but it was like there was a quite a quite a piece in there of how they're trying to land on that and they're trying to like you know what rhymes with this what rhymes with this and eventually they land on Tucson Arizona <laughs> it's crazy <laughs> you know and that's what it is that's what the creative price process is you know like I've done a few co-writes on some songs here in Nashville and it's just like What do you want the song to be, you know, what do you want the song to be about? And once you land on that, it's like, okay, so what do you want to say? You don't have to think about lyrics, really. You just have to figure out what you want to say. And then from what you want to say, figure out a way to sing it. So, you know what I mean? But I love that documentary. It was absolutely fascinating. Beatles, one of my all-time
3: favorites. Me too. Me too, for sure. (laughs) I always ask songwriters on the show this question, and it's it comes from a songwriting place. It's not a favorite song question at all. It's a songwriter's question. Can you give me an example of a song you covet that you wish you wrote that you think is perfectly crafted? That is the ultimate definition of songwriting if you looked it up mm. in the dictionary. But then you got to break mm. it down as a, as a songwriter and tell me why you think it's so brilliant. Any artist, any genre, that doesn't matter.
2: Okay. Um, let's see. I think you take a song like "Purple Rain," you know, um, it has a very specific structure, and there's a million uh, amazing, almost perfect song, you know, perfect songs that that don't necessarily have that structure, but that that song in particular has everything for me. It has uh, lyrics that mean something. You know, lyrics that uh, invoke an emotional response. You know what I mean? Whether, and that's anything that's love, that's anger, heartbreak, you know, hate, you know, all, all of that. You know, for, when I'm listening to music, I need music to elicit that from me. I need to feel joy. I need to feel something. And if I don't feel anything, any of those things, then it practically means nothing to me. So Purple rain, amazing verse, incredible singable chorus. and then but then musicianship on top of it, you know, one of the greatest guitar players that ever lived. Um, I just got back from Paisley Park by the way. Um, and uh, yeah, to me to me that's that's a perfect example of a perfect traditionally written song, you know. First chorus, first chorus, instrumental break, chorus. <laughs> you know, um, and I mean, most pop songs and have that kind of uh, form and that sort of makeup. Um, but then you, you know, on the flip side of that, take a look. Take a look at a song called uh, like Ariel's Talk. Uh, uh, system of Down. To me, again, that that's a very perfect song. Um but it has to do with makeup and amazing lyrics incredible melody you know killer chorus um so yeah i, I i'm a, i'm i'm always going to be about the song um you know what an
1: amazing question And there's probably a million songs out there but just brought up system of a down uh, so i'm going to go with them um oddsted 87, <laughs> i met them at a in-store at Daddy's Junkie Music, which is no longer around in Boston. I met them in Incubus. Hadn't seen the show. They did like a the day before they did a, you know, just an in-store. And met those guys, met the incubus guys. Everyone was super nice. And then the next day I saw them and I had not heard a single note of system. They walk on stage and I, they open with sweet pea with a <laughs> and within 30 seconds I was like, this is the best band in the world. Like I was completely blown away by their <laughs> energy. I mean, they were crazy energetic on stage. The lyrics were like, you know, so punk influenced and so raw and so aggressive. I just, I couldn't believe that they were that great. And I devoured that album, um, and in their entire catalog and I've seen them a million times. And so I'll go, I'll just start with Sweet Pea because it's just such a great tune. It's, you know, to Jay's point, it's, it's, it's not, crazy prog it's like very verse chorus verse chorus but it just works and it's a just a monster tune
3: you guys spend so much time on the road together and being a former tech and knowing what it's like to travel as much as you do there's there's certain constants on the road so I have some questions about touring number one what's a movie Rubicon cannot go one tour stop without quoting (laughs)
2: I know the answer to this.
1: I know the answer to this too. Actually, there's a few different movies. There's a few. Final but Tap for
2: sure. Always Team always. America. Always. <laughs> All right, Gary. Um. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think I said, those two get quoted more than anything else, or and watched for sure.
3: What about <laughs> what about the three a.m. Fuel stop, truck stop in the middle of nowhere, craziest thing you've ever bought at a truck stop, and um, the go-to that you need when you, that you go in looking for.
2: Mm. Mm.
3: Manson told me cheese-filled hot dogs. Changed my whole perspective.
2: (laughs) Cheese-filled hot dogs. I think... uh... (laughs) Yeah, go ahead. I mean, probably like in
1: Texas, we bought like a handle of Jack Daniels at a gas station at three in the morning just because you could. <laughs> right. That's just something that's like so foreign to me. And I, it was like right behind the counter. And I was like buying gas for the for the RV. And I was just like, can I have that handle of Jack? And the guy was like, yeah. And I was like, oh, OK. And so that, that would be my craziest thing just because you can't do that in Massachusetts.
3: Yeah. Especially at 3 a.m. Yeah.
1: 3 a.m. <laughs> Came in handy.
2: Yeah. Dude, I'm I, whenever I stop at those, man, I always want some, like, some. you remember those combos snacks? Like, mm-hmm. combos? Oh, yeah. Pretzel snacks? Like, I don't think I ever get those unless I stop at, like, a truck stop. And then, as far as crazy, I don't know that I've ever bought anything crazy.
3: Those a, truck stops truck sell shop. everything.
2: Oh, like- I know. They have, they have radar detectors <laughs> and, like, Blu-ray players that fit in your truck and all kinds of stuff.
3: Home decor. It's Home like a decor. pharmacy. It's, it, you could literally um, solve all the world's problems yeah. at a truck like stop a big, at 3 a.m.
2: A big case with like Lord of the Rings knives. <laughs> you know you've seen them. They got, you know, it's like Gandalf's dagger, but it's got an American flag on the handle. It's like, I don't get it. <laughs> you, didn't, you don't get it, but you did get it. You bought it. <laughs> <laughs> And we, we, I would say, I mean, we've showered at those truck stops, uh, a couple more than a couple times. Those
3: showers have probably kept bands together way longer than they would have before because the shower was so needed.
2: So oh, needed yes. back in the day we were, we toured the country and we all lived in this RV. It was like a class C RV and, and, uh, it was my dog went with us. So we had a dog that lived on the RV with us and, uh. I think at one point there was like a twelve day stretch where no one had been able to get a shower. Oh, you know, or, yeah. We had, you know.
1: Every night. yeah we, we had a show every night. Remember that? Yeah, we had a show every
2: night. We well, never, we never shows. took days off. Um, yeah. It got, it got pretty ripe in there, you know, with the dog <laughs> and everything else. <laughs> Showers are necessary, man.
3: Well, that brings me to the geezer question. That's what I call it. I'll preface it by saying that. I never brought up a musician's like, pets really before, but Geezer Butler let it slip that he had like five dogs and 13 cats. And I asked him, because he's a big animal rights person, and I asked him, well, how do you keep it all straight? And he let it slip that he and his wife, Gloria, name all their pets after gangster rappers. And he proceeded to list all of the pets' names named after rappers. So now, on the show, it's become the Geezer question. I have to ask you about your pets and where you got the names. And I blame geezer Butler for this ridiculous question.
2: <laughs> Dave, do you guys have pets? Yeah, oh, you have cats. Do, yeah.
1: Let me go first. I got to help my dog with something real quick. Um, I have two cats. They're uh, Maine Coon cats, uh, which are basically like dogs. Um, and I always, you know, my wife and I let our kids name them. Uh, so we have one whose name is Luigi and the other one, You can guess, but you'll be wrong. The other one's name is Noob, like (laughs) n 0 -0 b like a noob gamer. Yeah, got
2: it. Noob and Louie. Got it.
1: You can tell the kids are
3: into the games.
2: Oh, yeah. Uh, We have a 90-pound boxer uh, named Drax the Destroyer. (laughs) After the Marvel movies. Um, We have an orange cat named Weasley. (laughs) after the harry potter movies (laughs) and uh we have a snake uh yeah we have a ball python that my son wanted and its name is snappy because he's not friendly
3: (laughs) (laughs) and you have to feed that thing which i I could never i could not do that I, I can't i'm a dog person this is a dog house sure i couldn't sure. be feeding live things to other live oh things. yeah like, I can't. you don't feed them
2: they're not live so you order them and they're they come frozen and so you have to like thaw them out and then give them to the to the snake still yeah we've been trying to convince my son to let us rehome the snake but uh so far to no avail <laughs>
3: I just, I'm going to stick with the pug. Like, I'm...
2: I love pugs. I'm good with the pug. That's... Mm -hmm. She doesn't... That's that's what my dog is. is He's a a 20 times larger pug. Yeah. He's just a big goon. And he (laughs) snores and makes all kinds of noises. And he's always trying to get up on my business. Like... I can never take a dumper in peace because like he just comes in there and just like he just stares at me. Like. Is
3: it more relaxing for you to be home or out on the road with the band?
2: Um, because
3: it sounds like oh, chaos I mean, either way.
2: Yeah. Between the kids and the, the animals, no man, it's way more relaxing to uh, to be at home. <laughs> <laughs> when I'm at home, I don't have to go to bed at 4 a.m. You know, every night because you had to drive three hours after the show. Yeah. So, that being said, I love touring.
3: <laughs> yeah. Well, last time I saw you guys up in Beverly, you were touring with Collective Soul, and we had those fantastic three ways for anybody that's listening that all of a sudden thinks this interview's taking a left turn. <laughs> they're roasting oh, you're gonna, sandwiches. You're going to talk
2: about the sandwich. Yes. That's okay. First of all, we need, yeah, we need to talk about this. This is very important. <laughs> that was the greatest sandwich I ever had. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting emotional thinking about it. It was the greatest sandwich I ever had. <laughs> and I wasn't going to eat one. Like, you came back from there like, oh, we went to the bar next door.
3: Yeah, so me and you we're looking for food because you guys yeah. know that I'm bitchy normally. But when I'm hungry, it's like 10 times worse. So I'm like, yeah. somebody needs to feed me. I need to know where I can get food. And they were like... Go get roast beef sandwiches that right over the bridge in Salem, yeah. Mass. And the North Shore of Massachusetts is known for these yeah. roast beef sandwiches. Oh, I know. And cheese, mayo, and barbecue sauce is oh, what's called a God. three-way. Oh. And so Huey and I went on the roast beef sandwich run, and we brought them back. And you were like, "No, no, no! I, I don't want to, ro- I, no, I don't want a roast beef sandwich." But we got you one because I freaking knew. <laughs> <laughs> that you were going to come around.
2: Well, so I was. I wasn't necessarily hungry, but you guys sat down next to me, and you you started eating, and like you guys are like almost done. And I'm, the smell, I couldn't take it anymore. And then I was like, "Is there another one of those?" And you were like, "Yeah, there is." Best. Oh my gosh! Like I I, I got to find out how to get them to mail me some or something.
3: Shout out to Spencer Charnas from Ice Nine Kills. He's the guy that introduced uh, me to my first three way.
2: Oh. So Good,
3: yeah. so good. Yeah,
2: yeah. I'd take that over an actual three-way. <laughs> and my wife, yeah, definitely because I'm married. Duh. Duh. Wait, wait. What if I was part of the mix? What
1: would you? If I was part of the mix, would you reconsider, Jay? I
3: hmm. mean, technically, we're having one right now. If you really want to get technical.
2: <laughs> <You> sure are. Yeah, <laughs> <Bad>. that's great. <laughs>
3: So before I let you guys go, the holidays are coming up. Give me your go-to holiday tradition. Crazy sweaters, signature dish. Like, like, what's the the holiday tradition that you you cannot live without?
2: My wife does prime rib every every uh, every Christmas, and does the like the, hor- the She makes the horseradish sauce and all that stuff, and that's amazing. We do cinnamon rolls Christmas morning, always. And then, uh, yeah, up until like three years ago, we did the elf thing with the kids, which was so much fun because you can easily go on iTunes and just download an elf laugh. And so I would go through the house doing this little elf laugh and they would come running out knowing that it had moved. And so that was like a big thing. And now they, you know, they're beyond that, but yeah. I think for me,
1: it's eggnog. My father-in-law turned me on to that, like, five years ago and I'd never had it before. And so he's like, you got to try it. Right. So every, every year, Thanksgiving, I get a bottle of Buffalo trace and I have eggnog on Thanksgiving and eggnog on the day after Thanksgiving and then some eggnog <laughs> the day after that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but no, I, I save it for Thanksgiving and for uh, Christmas as well.
3: Yeah. You can't do eggnog all year long because you'll be like fat bastard in those movies.
1: Oh yeah. Exactly. exactly. Carrie, what's your holiday tradition?
3: Uh, my sister and I get up first thing in the morning because we cook Thanksgiving and Christmas and we do cinnamon rolls and mimosas while we're like nice. doing the turkey Christmas lasagna. It's the only time of the year I make lasagna. I make it at Christmas. Yes. And then because we do all the cooking, my cousin Christy comes over to like help peel vegetables like late morning. And she always brings a tray of Rice Krispie Treats. And that is our like breakfast because it's the only thing my sister and I didn't have to make. And we eat them by ripping them apart. Like, I don't understand people that cut Rice Krispie Treats into like squares. We just take handfuls, which the first time my husband came to a holiday when we were dating, he was like, you guys are savages. What is wrong (laughs) with you? Because we just rip the tray of Rice Krispie Treats apart.
2: But, I think that's the smartest way to go about it. Go to, you know, your hands are getting sticky either way.
3: Yeah. So, and you know, they're good when they're super stretchy. Super, uh, so mimosas, rice, crispy treats and lasagna to me is Christmas. Awesome. And spiked nice hot apple button. cider that will get you wasted. If you're not careful, <laughs> I make it to tailgate yeah. Pat's games too. And if you don't, show it the respect it's due, it'll knock you on your ass. Yeah. <laughs> but isn't it funny how certain things associate with, like, like, that day? Like, it's just...
2: Absolutely. Yeah. You ever eat Thanksgiving dinner and you're like, man, why don't we make this food more often? Because
3: it's a pain in the balls.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, like, we have, like, green bean casserole, like, sweet potato casserole and stuff like that. And it's, like, stuff's so good.
3: I will tell you guys, stuffing in a waffle maker the next day <gasps> is the greatest bread for a hot turkey sandwich you will ever have. We call them you just shuffles. Cha- you, just,
2: you just changed the game.
3: Dude, I'm telling you, leftover stuffing in the waffle iron, you'll never go back.
2: I'm going to make Mickey Mouse wa- stuff in waffles and my Mickey Mouse maker.
3: You'll never go back. They're freaking delicious. <laughs> um <laughs> all right, amazing. so we got to we got to talk business before I let you guys go. What's the plan for Rubicon in 2024? You obviously have a new record you're trying to finish up. So what's going on after that?
2: Well, we've got um the singles out now and we're working on the rest of the record. Um I think what we're shooting for probably is a record release at the beginning of the year. Um we have a show coming up In the 1st, December 3rd in California with our bros in Buckcherry. And then uh, second half of January for the first time ever, uh, we're heading overseas and we're going to do two weeks in the UK, Wales and Scotland um, with with our bros in Buckcherry. And then, um, yeah, after that, we'll – We'll see what's next.
3: <laughs> Buck Cherry is one of the bands that works with Marty Fredrickson that we were talking about earlier. And Josh Todd Definitely. told me that you guys fish from time to time.
2: Oh yeah. Is yep. he a good fisherman? Yep. He always, Yeah. He's a good fisherman. He's, he likes to bass fish and that's what I like. and enjoy doing that too. So when they were here during the, the cycle for the last record, uh, he and I would split at like three o'clock and go fish till, till dusk in my, my little boat. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, what a sweet guy. Love him to death. And uh it's 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 not it's it's very, very much like a family atmosphere when we when we get to tour with those guys. Um and the same can be very well said for like you mentioned earlier, Collective Soul. What a what a sweet, what a amazing group. And
3: uh I had never met guys. Ed Roland before until we all hung out <laughs> at that show. He's
2: oh my gosh, he's he's great. He's yeah. he's just a character and just the sweetest guy. So but yeah.
3: So you got a lot What's going on next year. Obviously when the record comes out, you'll have more of, i you'll have more of an yeah. idea of what the rest of the year touring wise is going to be.
2: Man, we would really love next year to, to, to be able to do some of these nice festivals, Rockville or, or, or something like that, you know, um, not only to play them, but to, just to, you know, meet a lot of these great bands and these acts and stuff that are, that are out. But, um, yeah, I mean, we're going to be pretty active, um, next year we'll just see where it all shakes out after the uk
3: well it was good to see you guys thank you for coming on the show thank,
2: thank you for you having so us much. it was, it was, was our blast. absolute pleasure
3: we gotta do this Best more in often the business just to say hi because it's nice to see you guys like i don't get to see you all that often but modern right. technology no. every now and again solves problems so it's good that i got to definitely. see definitely
1: definitely yeah it's our pleasure thank you so much carrie love, love you, you sis
3: There they are, Jay and Dave from Rubicon. The new single, Lose It All, is out now and of course is featured on the corresponding playlist for this week's episode. All you gotta do is check the show notes. You'll find all the Rubicon links and some of Jay and Dave's links as well, all the Mistress Carrie links and the link to this week's corresponding playlist that features all of the Rubicon music and all the songs and artists that we mentioned in the episode. I make a corresponding playlist for every full-length episode of the podcast. And of course, new episodes come out every Wednesday. If you liked what you heard, don't forget to like, follow, and subscribe to the Mistress Carrie podcast. On top of the full-length episodes, you also get the sit rep every weekday, which breaks down all of your rock news and music headlines and entertainment updates in about five minutes and you never know when we're gonna release a bonus episode. You can find me live every Tuesday night at 8.30 Eastern on my official Facebook page for my video show, Cocktails in the War Room. And of course, you can always listen to the Mistress Carrie show on your radio. Get the details on all that and more at mistresscarrie.com. And while you're on the site, don't forget to do some holiday shopping in the online Mistress Carrie store. The Mistress Carrie podcast, a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network.